The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Now, dear friends, we're ready to open up God's Word to the book of Colossians. So, if you haven't already, we're returning to the book of Colossians. Take your copy of God's Word and turn there with me on page 983 of a Bible in the Purack or your Bible that you brought from home, which is a wonderful practice, bringing your copy of God's Word here to church with you. We're opening the book of Colossians again, and we're just breaking the surface of this letter. Uh, We're in the third of our uh, series now, but we're just getting started So let's just remember very quickly by way of review that the Apostle Paul is writing to a church in Colossae, which is a very young church, an upstart church, we could even call it, in a small place, a small village. What was once a large town has been reduced over the years, but there is a a growing and vibrant church, but it's a very young church in Colossae. Paul is writing to them to encourage them to continue on in the faith that they have learned to continue to press on, to walk on the narrow path. And as he is writing to this young church, as he's wanting to encourage them, he does so in the context of admitting that as you walk the path, there will be distractions and side roads and false teachings that want to keep you from continuing on the narrow path. But you must continue to walk because it is the way of Christ to walk his narrow path. There's going to be side roads. There's going to be distractions. But you, Colossians, you keep going. So he's writing to encourage them. And what we'll see as we make our way through the letter together, that there was a particular form of teaching that had begun to have some influence there in Colossae. And it was the idea that it was possible to believe in Jesus Christ to receive Him as Lord, to receive Him as Savior, to receive the forgiveness of your sins, to receive eternal life, but yet somehow still lack this key word that comes again and again and again in the book of Colossians, that you could receive Christ and yet somehow lack fullness. This is a key word in Colossians, fullness. That is to say, fullness is this very important word where people were interested in the fullness of spiritual life, fullness of spiritual power, spiritual dynamism, excitement, that sort of thing. And there was this growing sense in Colossae that even in this young church that the fullness of the Christian faith needed to be found outside the simplicity of the gospel. There was this notion that the gospel itself was too simple, too straightforward, too basic, that it lacked within itself the fullness of excitement, the fullness of spiritual life that could be found outside of Jesus. And Paul is confronting that notion to say, no, fullness, completeness, sufficiency is found in Christ, not apart from Him. Not apart from Him. Now, that is a very relevant thing for you and I today. We're 2,000 years separated from the writing of this letter, but this is still a relevant issue for us today because there are certain teachers and authors that make their living by telling us that this new ministry or this new teaching is going to revolutionize your life. It's never been heard before. Pay attention. Your life is going to be totally changed, which sounds just like every advertisement on the Home Shopping Network, right? Every single doodad and gizmo is going to totally revolutionize your life. You'll never knew what life was like before you had this. Well, spiritual teaching often works like that too. Where people come to you and say, I've got something new. 
I've got something exciting. I've got something the church has never heard before. And when we hear these claims, these sales pitches, we hear these claims of supernatural power and previously unknown insights that are determined to knock our socks off. And what happens is that you and I begin to subtly at first, and then maybe in real practice, begin to doubt that the age-old simplicity of the Christian faith is real and true and powerful and helpful and sufficient. We get distracted by something really flashy and really excited that we begin to think that praying and reading our Bible just isn't going to cut it anymore for an exciting Christian life. And we begin to wonder if we're missing out or if perhaps our Christianity isn't the real thing because we're not buying into the next exciting thing coming around the pike. Perhaps maybe we wonder we are the ones that have been deceived. And so Paul is writing to the Colossians to confront that notion and tell them, no, Christ is sufficient. The gospel is enough. You don't lack if you're trusting in Christ. As much as you might be tempted to think that somehow you're missing out, you're not. So, what we find ourselves today is that he is doing this here. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church here in this introductory section of thanksgiving by praising God for what he knows about the Colossians, what he recognizes in, in them in terms of their genuine faith, love, and hope, and the fact that the gospel has been advancing among them and advancing through them. He recognizes what the gospel is doing in them and through them, and he is thankful. So that's our outline for our text this morning, what the gospel is doing in them and through them. So with that in mind, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures, and we'll hear it together this morning. Our great God, we bow now, thankful that You've called us together, thankful that we can meet, thankful to sing Your praises and pray and seek our assurance in Your Gospel truth. So now we ask, Lord, that as we open up Your Word, that Your Word would be open to us, that we would have minds to know it and hearts to receive it and wills to obey Lord, Your Word does wonderful things. So may it work its power upon us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now hear the Word of God in Colossians chapter 1. Under the heading Thanksgiving and Prayer, we're looking at verses 3 through 8. This is the Word of God. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for You. Since we heard of Your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that You have for all the saints, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. May He write its truth on our hearts today. Well, what is the Gospel doing in the Colossians and through the Colossians? And as we ask that question, we should be able to, in parallel fashion, say, what is the Gospel doing in Edgington and through Edgington? 
That's what Paul is talking about here. Well, again, let's see that the gospel is doing something in the Colossians and also through the Colossians. But first, in the Colossians, Christians, in the life of these uh, faithful Christian brothers and sisters, the gospel is bearing fruit. That's what Paul is writing to the Colossians here at the beginning to say that he is by way of thanksgiving and prayer, as he often does at the beginning of his letters. He is overflowing with a word of gratitude of, of their faithfulness and of the fruits of the gospel that he knows are present in them. Now remind yourself that the Apostle Paul, he's never been to Colossae. He doesn't know these people. He didn't plant this church. So everything that the Apostle Paul knows about this congregation, he knows by way of somebody else's testimony, and we know actually who that person is. It's Epaphras, and we'll mention him later on. But as Paul begins this letter, he is establishing in a goodwill fashion this beginning Thanksgiving section to say, I've heard of you, I'm so thankful for you, and this is who I am, and I have things that I want to say to you. So he overflows with this Thanksgiving section. And actually, you might be interested to know that the introduction to this letter runs all the way through chapter 1 and even all the way into chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 5, is the end of the introduction to this letter. So the introduction of Paul's letter runs all the way through chapter 1 into chapter 2, verse 5, where if you skip ahead and notice Colossians 2, verse 6, Colossians 2, verse 6 is the big therefore. So 2, verse 6 really begins the teaching instruction of the letter, and everything before that is just introduction. It's just preamble to what he's getting ready to say, but the section of thanksgiving and preamble really falls into three sections, and we're just looking at the first one this morning of thanksgiving and prayer, and in that, we find Paul speaking about what the gospel is doing in the lives of the Colossian Christians, and what the gospel is doing is that the gospel is bearing fruit in their lives. The Apostle Paul is writing with thanksgiving about how the gospel is bearing fruit in them. These are the things that Paul says he's giving thanks to God for in the lives of these Christians because the things that he's going to write about are both lovely in and of themselves, but also because these things that Paul is going to speak of are the evidences that these Colossian Christians are genuine Christian people. The things that Paul is going to give thanks for are the marks of the gospel as being a true gospel in the lives of these Christians. They are signs that these people are really alive. Alive spiritually. That there's a real church here in Colossae because the gospel is doing something in them and that is that it is bearing fruit. So what are the signs of fruit-bearing gospel in the lives of the Colossian church. Well, there's three of them here. And the first one is, in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of, first of all, your faith. What you're going to find here is that the fruit that the gospel bears is the often called Christian triad of faith, love, and hope. Or faith, hope, and love, but in this order, it's faith, love, hope. These are the fruits of the gospel. And Paul says... I hear about it. I hear that it has evidences in your life and you truly display these things. And the first one again is faith. Their faith. Or their faithfulness. Their faithful trusting in Christ. So let's say something very obvious, shall we? 
that one of the first fruits of the gospel is faith. That's what we're saying. Genuine faith. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what he says. True gospel faith involves genuine faith in Christ in the first place. And although that might seem totally self-evident and obvious to many, I think we actually take for granted that that is not self-evident and obvious to actually many people. That they don't actually know the first thing about what true faith is. True Christian faith bears itself out in the fruit of faith. We take this for granted, but there is a real misunderstanding about this in the wider church and, of course, the wider culture where people have, let me say very directly, very little fear or concern about their eternal destiny. They either don't think about it or they just don't care. It's kind of a blatant agnosticism, a shrugging of the shoulders and a so what mentality. But perhaps those who do care, there's just kind of this passing interest, obviously, oftentimes, where there's, where there's no lack of an absolute certainty that they are definitely confident that they will find a home with God in heaven, even while they have given no evidence in their life for genuinely trusting Christ, which is a great concern. A person who has absolute confidence that they will live forever with Jesus even though their entire life they showed no indication that they had any interest in living for Jesus while they yet lived. So if you were to ask some people, they might suggest that their hope is that when they come to stand before God in judgment, that they will somehow measure up, the scales will balance out in their favor, because after all, God is gracious. You know, they did their best. They prayed occasionally. They did their best to be a decent person, and they hope the scales will turn a favorable result but what are they doing? They're trusting in themselves, aren't they? And maybe you used to trust in yourself, trust in your own goodness. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. In verse 4, he says, since we heard of your faith. But these Christians don't just have faith, generally speaking, without any specific object. No, Paul says they have faith in Christ. Very clear. That is that Jesus is the object of their faith. And what that means is that if Jesus is the object of your faith, then you're not looking to your own goodness. Then you're not looking to your record of obedience. You're not looking to the balance of your scales or how good of a person you have been, your own good deeds and merit. The gospel bears the fruit of faith that looks away from ourselves and looks to Jesus. The true Christian knows that Jesus has died for their sins, and Jesus has died not just for our sins, but Jesus, loved ones, also died for the things that you used to look to in yourself and trust. Jesus died for your record of obedience, which you used to be impressed with, but through true faith in the gospel have come to see that that was never worth trusting in the first place. Jesus died not just for the worst of us, but for our best efforts, which still fall short. Do you remember what the prophet Isaiah says? That all of our righteousness, all of our supposed righteousness, is like a filthy rag. Even the things that we are impressed with within ourselves through faith in Christ, we learn to look away from and become no longer impressed with. Jesus died for all of it. We sing it together, don't we? 
All other ground is sinking sand. Even the record of my merit and obedience, it's not worth standing on. It's just not. And a true Christian who has grown in the faith of Jesus Christ knows that, sees that. Do you believe it? The Apostle Paul says the mark of the bearing fruit of the gospel is true faith. And the second one is not just faith, but also love. The second of the triad, faith and then love, love. It's easy for people to co-opt love and define it however they want. And then people can say, well, love means this or love means that. What does, the, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of love? Well, Jesus says that love is one of the central ethics of the life of a Christian. That we should love God and love our neighbor. That love is a distinguishing mark of the Christian faith. That love is covenantal and bears commitment. That, that love here in this context is a reflection of love for the saints, that is to say, your fellow Christians. That there is a record of demonstrable love amongst yourselves, amongst all believers, not just those people who you are inclined to like anyway, or the people whom you would naturally, uh, naturally associate yourself with, but the people who you become compelled to love even though externally there's nothing inherently lovable in them, or you would be by society disposed to be far away from them, but the gospel has transformed the way you look at them in such a way that you can say, I love that person. I have love for them in my heart. Gospel love is a cross-shaped, church-focused love amongst fellow Christians. Listen to the way one commentator says the, the importance of Christian love. He says this, the Christian faith is not able to be true and sincere without love. No more than a fire can be fire without heat. So love is as essential to the life of a Christian as heat is to a fire. Now understand, of course, that when Paul speaks about the Colossians' love, right? you see there again in verse 4, since we have heard of your faith and of the love that you have for all the saints. He's not just talking about a mere feeling. Or he's not just talking about a form of words, a lip service to saying, oh yeah, yeah, I love my fellow Christians, sure, yeah, whatever. He's not just talking about warm feelings or empty words. You know, like a thing that says, well, yeah, I love that person because I'm supposed to, but let me tell you everything I don't love about this person. No, Paul is here saying that I have heard about your genuine faith and the love that you have for all the saints. What kind of Christian love is that? A love that is self-sacrificial, a love that is patient and kind, a love that thinks the best of other people no matter what, a love that doesn't keep a record of wrongs, a love that goes the extra mile for people who you might be totally convinced wouldn't go an inch for you, you'd go the mile for them. Real sacrificial Christian love is the kind of love that Jesus has for us. That's the point, isn't it? That we love one another in Christ because we have been loved by Christ this way. It is one of the distinguishing marks that Jesus is really at work in your life when you love one another. Remember Jesus said also, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love that can't be explained in an earthly category Love that does not make sense to an outsider that says, not only do you like that person, you love them? And you respond, yes, yes, because in Christ, 
I have been loved, so I will also love. Love is the second mark. So, uh, faith first. Second, love. And then third, do you see it? Hope. Verse 4 again. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, verse 5, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. Paul is saying to these Colossian Christians, the gospel is at work and alive in you because of your faith, because of your love, and now because of your hope. But hope in the Bible is not aspiration, right? It's not like a shrugging of the shoulders. I hope it's going to rain. I hope it won't rain. It's not like a all shucks, I wonder if, no matter what, uncertain, vague notions. That's not how the Bible speaks of hope. The Bible speaks of hope as a certain reality of confidence, a certain reality of assurance. The Apostle Paul uses hope in many different contexts, but he also says in Galatians 5, 5, that we as Christians have the hope of righteousness. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul speaks of Jesus Christ as the appearing of our blessed hope. That we are, as Christian people, hopeful people. So, let me just quickly here. Do you feel that your hope is... Uh, draining? Or do you feel perhaps that your hope is time-tested in such a way that you're saying, I don't know if this pillar can support me anymore? What does the Bible say about hope? Paul says that these Christians, their faith, their love, and their hope is a real thing for them. Verse 5, because of the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. In verse 5, that's an interesting way of saying it, isn't it? That he's speaking about hope as laid up or stored up. Or another way of translating that is put on reserve. It's like an eternal layaway where he is saying, the Apostle Paul is saying, you are trusting in something that is still yet future that is not a all shucks, I hope it will or won't happen, but it is a guaranteed objective reality of truth. What he's talking about here is the reference to a future, full, final salvation where Jesus will one day make everything right. But you and I know that we don't live in that place right now, do we? In fact, things are not right all over the place. So what does that do to your hope? Does it cause your hope to become crippled and deflated and surrendered? Or does it cause your hope to intensify as you anticipate with confidence what is yet to be one day but not quite yet because you know that Jesus rules from heaven right now. And one day He will reign visibly but right now, He reigns to us by faith. And for the Christian believer, we think about that reality where one day in the greatness of the church triumphant, gathered together all in white, the nail-pierced hands of our Savior will wipe away all of our tears and restore to us all that we have lost and give to us the fullness of joy in His presence forever. And that's coming. And so we hope and hope motivates faith and love. This is how these three things work together. The Apostle Paul is saying the gospel is producing the fruit of faith, love, and hope because that's what the gospel does. He says to them, you 
are doing this because, in verse 5, because you have heard the word of truth, the gospel. He says the gospel is what's doing that in you. Your faith, your love, and your hope are products of your hearing the gospel there in verse 5. And when Paul speaks of hearing the gospel, he doesn't just mean your audible listening. Because the word hear, both in Greek and in Hebrew, is used in the Bible over 1,500 times to designate not just an auditory reception, but when we hear, it talks about attentiveness to the teaching, absorbing that teaching into the mind, heart, and soul, and then acting in obedience on the word spoken. In other words, to hear is to obey. And so when Paul writes to the Colossians and says, you have heard the gospel, he is essentially saying, you have heard and obeyed the gospel. And your obedience of response to the gospel is producing the fruit of, again, faith, love, and hope. Now this is not complicated. It's actually quite simple. But it is a work of divine grace. That when we hear the gospel... We receive the gospel, and the fruit of the gospel is faith, love, and hope. So let me just be very clear about something that I think oftentimes we take for granted. We use the term gospel a lot, right? Gospel this and gospel that. And some people get confused and they say, what the, you know, gospel, but then you say gospels, you put an S on it, and there's four of them. Gospel, gospel, what's the deal? Well, we think of the gospel accounts, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of accounting for the narrative of what Jesus has done. And the gospel, according to 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul says, this is what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's what the gospel is. And a person is appropriately called a Christian when they hear the gospel, believe the gospel, and live in obedience to the gospel. In other words, gospel people. Gospel churches, gospel communities, they receive the announcement and believe it by faith. That's what the gospel is. And the Apostle Paul says, you Colossians, you're real Christians. You're real gospel-believing, Christ-embracing, kingdom-trusting Christian people. That's what the gospel is doing in you. But then he also says, not only what the gospel is doing in them, but also what the gospel is doing through them. Notice both of these things are here in the text. Look at verse 6 again. The word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world and is bearing fruit and increasing as it does also among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow, beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So the gospel is bearing fruit in them and the gospel is advancing through them. The Apostle Paul says, you learned it from Epaphras. Epaphras is a Colossian citizen who traveled to Ephesus and learned the gospel from Paul. You can read about that in the book of Acts. And then Epaphras takes that gospel message, the gospel message of Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the resurrected Savior and Messiah. He takes that message to a place called Colossae, and he says it. He proclaims the gospel, and there are people there that believe it. <laughs> And it produces faith, love, and hope. And the Apostle Paul says, this is how this works. It's come to you from Epaphras, who is a beloved fellow servant, faithful minister of Christ. He brought it to you 
And then we understand that Epaphras at some point left Colossae to go back to Paul and say, I got to tell you about what's happened in Colossae. I got to tell you about this church that's come together. And there are these people and they believe in Jesus and faith, love, and hope are evidenced in their life. And it's this wonderful thing. They've never even met you, Paul, but they believe the gospel that you preach. And Epaphras goes back to Paul to report it. And Paul says, that's wonderful. I'm going to write him a letter. And that's what this is. So Paul says, I've heard, I've heard of your gospel faith. I've heard of how it's come to you by way of Epaphras, and I want you to know, Colossian Christians, that the same gospel that you believe is the same gospel that's going out everywhere across the world. You think that your location is of little consequence because you're just all shucks Colossae. But the gospel you believe is the gospel that's going to make its way to Rome, the center of the world. The gospel that's going to go all over the world and proclaim a king who reigns in heaven and you believe that same message. The gospel that has come to you is a gospel that's going from you into all the world. Why does Paul do this? I think there's a lot of reasons, but one of the main reasons is he's writing to encourage them. He wants these Colossian Christians to know you're not alone. You might oftentimes be tempted to think that you are alone when your neighbors or your family members or your coworkers don't believe what you believe and you think, oh boy, here I am. And the Apostle Paul is saying, you're not alone. This gospel that you believe is the gospel that's going out into all the world. And it encourages their hearts to know that they're not alone. But there are some things that we should say about that. And Calvin, in the 16th century, uh, helpfully gives us some of these thoughts. Paul is writing to these Colossians to say, you're not alone. The gospel's going into all the world. But let's ask the question, what if you were alone? What if you did perceive that you were totally alone in the faith that you believed and nobody around you held it? Would it still be true? Would the gospel still be true if you were the only one who believed it? Listen to what Calvin says about this. He says, The gospel's truthfulness does not depend on its success, as though we should leave it, believe it because many other people believe it. But he writes, Even if the entire world should pass away, even if heaven itself should be destroyed, the conscience of a Christian must not waver because the gospel is God's truth. In other words, you should believe it no matter what. You should believe it even if nobody else believes it. Why? Because it's true. But we believe that the gospel is God's truth. And so when we, like these Colossian Christians, receive the report that not only do you believe it, but there are people all over the world who believe it, it suddenly becomes this wonderful encouragement of our faith because Calvin also says this. It doesn't mean that our faith is hindered, but in fact, our faith is confirmed when we hear of more people coming to trust in Christ. Your faith as a Christian should be encouraged when you hear that there are other people who are coming to believe in Jesus too. Have you felt that here? Do you feel that here in this church when you, when you hear of somebody else who's willing to stand up and in public say, I believe in Jesus Christ as he has offered to me in the gospel? That should do something in you, right? It should make you say, this gospel is true and right and here is the evidence of its advance right there in front of me. Praise the Lord for its advance. 
It's wonderfully encouraging. But the point that I want to make to you is that you should believe the gospel even if you don't see its advance. So that all the more reason when you do see its advance, it's that much more of an encouragement to you. And that's what Paul is saying to these Colossians. The gospel has been received from you. It's going out from you as well. I was reading about this uh, from a, a French 17th century commentator. I spent a lot of time in historical commentaries this week, and a Frenchman had something to say about this that just captured me so much that I wanted to read it to you at length. He was comparing the reality of the advance of the Christian faith from how Islam has advanced in the world and in history. A contrasting comparison between the advance of the Christian faith and the advance of Islam. Listen to what he says. He says, Muhammad and his successors advanced their religion not by preaching and doctrine, but by force of arms and dint of sword. It was their iron and not their Koran that ran through the world. The Koran only entered cities whose gates were first opened by fire and sword. But as to the gospel of the Lord Jesus, it is quite otherwise. He goes on to explain how it is the gospel has advanced into all the world and says this, The gospel is not sustained or advanced in the world by aid of force or favor of army or the success of war or the exploits of a conqueror. It had not in its service either the charms of eloquence or the subtleties of philosophy. Those who carried it were twelve or thirteen fishermen, with a little number of others of the same cloth, without credit, without arms, without courage, without experience, the off-scouring and sweepage of the world, weakness and imbecility itself, who instead of smiting and slaying were themselves whipped and stoned at every turn." instead of attacking, did not so much as make resistance to tell them that ill handled them. Living in extreme humility and innocence, he goes on to finalize by saying, with this poor equipment, the gospel has overtaken the world. The gospel advances not by the force of an army, but by the force of genuine Christian faith, love, and hope through the preaching of the gospel, through the receiving of the gospel by faith. And so what we should say about that by way of application is that what happened in Colossae, as Paul writes to them to encourage them, is the same thing that has happened all over the world as people receive and rest upon Jesus Christ as He is offered to them in the gospel. That the same gospel that was preached to these Colossian Christians is hopefully by God's grace the exact same gospel that is preached to us that we believe and we are united to them in common faith and the Christian faith that we believe in is still the continuing Christian faith of successive ages and generations and by God's grace the next generation and the next generation so let me just ask you very personally You don't just naturally absorb the Christian faith by osmosis. Somebody has to teach you. Somebody has to tell you. Somebody has to come to you and say, Jesus Christ, Lord of heaven, raised for the forgiveness of your sins. Who was it for you? Whether a Sunday school teacher 
or a Bible study leader or a, a Christian friend or coworker or maybe a pastor in your history, somebody brought the gospel to you and Paul says in Romans 10, 17 that their feet were beautiful because they brought you the gospel. In other words, you had an Epaphras in your life who it was Epaphras who brought the gospel to the Colossian Christians and someone brought the gospel to you. So we should also ask then, for whom are you an Epaphras? Because you don't want the gospel to just find a dead end at your life, do you? You want the gospel to be received by you and then go forth from you to bear witness to Jesus Christ with the sincerity of your faith, your love, and your hope. And we rejoice to see the fruit of the gospel in one another's lives. And what the Colossian congregation was, was a gathering of people who believed the gospel and it was bearing fruit in them. And at the end of the day, loved ones, that's what a church is. A church is many things and provides many things to many people, but it is at its very core a group of people who believe in Jesus Christ as he has offered to them in the gospel and are having their lives transformed by that same Jesus. It's just that simple. And it's just that wonderful, isn't it? Paul has a lot to say to this church, and by virtue of it, the Lord has a lot to say to this church as well. So may we be a continuing church of a gospel people, bearing witness and bearing fruit. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you send your Spirit upon the earth, that as you have ascended to heaven there to reign, you've sent your Spirit to live in our hearts. Lord, we pray that we here in Edgington might be a true gospel people, believing, receiving, resting in the gospel, and seeing the evidences of its fruit borne out in us. Lord, as we see that, we give you glory and we thank you and we pray. We pray now earnestly, Lord, that we would be a more faithful people and that we would see the gospel proclaimed not just formally and publicly in a teaching ministry, but informally and privately in one another's lives as well. Lord, work in us in this way that your gospel might advance in our community and even to the ends of the world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.